0: of um, what is truth. So, today I'm gonna go over the topic of what is truth. And so, this topic, I was asked to give a talk to a bunch of uh, high school and some middle school kids on two topics. The two topics were what is truth, and the second topic was on who can be saved. Now, those topics are pretty massive topics, and I was given 20 minutes to talk about each. So... Honestly, I could have done better. I kind of, um, it was a little bit all over the place and I just needed more time. I guess I should have boiled it down to just one point instead of trying to cover the whole topic. But I really felt that the that young people today really need these topics in depth. So I decided I'm going to do a podcast on this whole thing because I kind of prepared for a longer talk and just condensed it down to way too short and I actually went over my time. So mea culpa to the uh, community there at St. Louis and Cedar in Houston. But without further ado, let's go straight into it. So the first topic, and next week I'll probably release the one on what is on who can be saved. But today we're going to go over what is truth. So it's going to be a little bit of a PowerPoint format for the first time. So this is a bunch of firsts for me. So we're going to go and use the a live stream. I don't know if anybody's going to tune in for the live stream. Probably not. But nonetheless, we are here. And then afterwards, I also will be um, using a PowerPoint for the first time. So that's pretty cool. So what is truth? Well, let's start with the Gospel of John. John chapter 18, verses 33 through 38 says, Pilate therefore went into the hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Sayest thou these things of thyself? Or have others told it thee of me? Jesus answered, or Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Thy own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee up to me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would certainly strive that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate therefore said to him, art thou a king then? (laughs) Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king, for this was I born, and for this came I into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith to him, What is truth? Praise be to thee, O Christ. Everyone that is of the truth the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith to him, What is truth? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Quid est veritas. What is truth? Today, this question echoes throughout the world, not as a sincere inquiry into wisdom, but as the battle cry of the enemies of Holy Mother Church, raising the banners of tolerance, open-mindedness, and revolution. The author of this confusion is the father of lies himself, the devil, who desires to keep us in the double darkness in which we have been born, an obscurity of sin and ignorance. This will be the discussion of today's talk, but first, let us salute the Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Lady Bearer of Truth, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Dominic, pray for us. Alrighty, so, what is truth. That is the question we have before us today. From the beginning of the enemies of Holy Mother Church have desire to crush the truth. In the garden the devil tells Adam and Eve that it is true. Is it true that God commanded you to eat of no trees of the garden? You may eat. You will not die the death. Thousands of years later we still see the cry of the French Revolution setting up the idol of reason and the catholic churches. Slaughtering the nuns and priests who dared to stay faithful to the truth. And even here, just hours away from this and south of the border in Mexico, the revolution attempted to destroy truth. The story I'm going to share with you next is, is the story of the Crustero martyrs. And many people have heard of the 20th century Mexican revolutionary government, which sought to overthrow the true religion and put in a place of anti-Catholic government. And it kind of succeeded. And for those who don't aren't aware of what I'm talking about, I highly recommend checking out the movie for greater glory. The movie really w- w- does a good job of depicting uh, what I'm talking about here. But also the uh, what happened with the Mexican Revolution was the free Masonic government tried to take over, instituted laws forbidding clerics from wearing their police garb, forbidding religious from wearing habits and things to that matter. So back to the talk. Uh, here is one story of the strength of the Mexican Catholics. Being an echo of fidelity, holding true to the words in Timothy, do not let anyone think less of thee for thy youthfulness. Make thyself a model of speech and behavior for the faithful. All love, all faith, all purity. So here's the story in full. In one village in Sonora in 1934, the teacher imposed or rather tried to impose on the Catholic children the new rote prayer. Uno, dos, uno, dos, no, adios. One, two, one, two, there is no God. But the children would have none of it. Every time the teacher repeated the words, they banged on their desk and shouted, adios, adios. There is a God. There is a God. And they wore them out. They gave up in despair. So here are some images of the Cristero martyrs. You might recognize some of these pictures. This is Jose Sanchez de Rio right here. And these are some good images of the Cristero Mars. I'm just gonna leave it here for now. The uh, slideshow I have, I'm not, I don't really like slideshows too much. I mostly use slideshows for the purpose of giving just a visual, uh, not much more than that. So stories like this one exist all over the world, from Catholics who stood as counter-revolutionaries. Famously, it was said in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. I would amend that statement by saying that telling the truth is a counter-revolutionary act. This is an important point that I wasn't planning on going into in the talk, but since this is a video, I can just go on for as long as I need, right? So the thing that's important here is the fact that a a counter-revolution is someone that we're taking back what was ours. We're we're taking things back to order. If the revolution is disorder, then the counter-revolution is a return to order. That's from Professor Plenio's book, Revolution and Counter-Revolution. And this is a very important thing that I really wish I I could have talked about and really should be a talk in and of itself. And maybe I will do a whole talk on revolution, counter-revolution, or a podcast on it interview some of the guys with a TFP. But the revolution and counter-revolution idea here is that in the beginning, God created everything ordered. There was no disorder in the world. And it was by the count, the revolutionary act of the devil, and then the revolutionary acts that we see throughout history of the French Revolution, the Protestant Revolution, the Orthodox Schismatic Revolution, all these different revolutions that happened over time, we could find and see the thread through all these things. And the counter-revolution is what we are trying to do, a restoration of order. Whenever there is false things being put into place, it is the counter-revolution that fights to put true things into place. And that is a huge difference. So back to the talk here. So let's get back a little and start from the beginning. What is truth? St. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest mind who ever lived, said that the truth is the conformity of the mind to reality. We'll revisit this definition after we have cleared away some debris. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, I did a whole podcast. I highly recommend checking it out on why he's the greatest of mine who ever lived and why the church has endorsed him above everyone else. So check that out. Every person who takes a Philosophy 101 class or watches enough School, a school of Life or Wisecrack videos on YouTube think they understand what it means to be deep inevitably they will become skeptics it's truly a test of their common sense to see how long it takes for them to shake it off now what is skepticism simply put it is the denial of all things it denies all knowledge of any kind the problem with this position is simple no one can actually adhere to this philosophy the skeptic can say he's a skeptic but he can never live as a skeptic for if nothing exists and nothing is true why do you eat why do you sleep? If I slap you, why do you flinch? There is no argument one can make to disprove disprove skepticism, at least at the most radical forms of skepticism, for they deny the most fundamental truth. For example, the principle of non-contradiction, that something cannot be and not be in the same respect and at the same time. This is true, and everyone agrees upon it as a, just a very simple principle that cannot be violated. But the skeptic denies this, And thus has destroyed all rational discourse. The solution given by the French Dominican, uh, and I don't even, not even going to try to say his name. What I should have done was put up a picture of his book. But his name is like Father Sardagelanus, Sardagelanus. But he says, basically, go touch grass. And this is a really great point. He says, by doing something strenuous, by talking to someone, by eating a good meal, by doing something enjoyable... It'll be clear that reality exists. Now, the father, this Dominican priest in the book, Intellectual Life, he gives actual argument for it. And but at the end of the day, he's like, Yeah, you really can't prove skepticism is false because then you would just say, Well, how do you know that's true? So it's like, how do you know the principle of non-contradiction is true? Well, the principle is the principle. And so if you deny everything, well, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere left to go. So that's a huge problem. Now, Go touch grass is a great advice because when you realize I kind of went through the same stage when I was in high school, I didn't actually believe in skepticism and I didn't really try to um, fight for it very much. I just thought it was funny. I thought it was a funny idea and I wanted to try to tell my mom about it. I remember going home and I just had to sc- learn about this position and I was like, oh, I'm going to ask my mom. Maybe I can uh, convince her that the, um, the skepticism is true. And then, so I went over there and I just started asking my mom all these questions. Like, how do you know anything exists? Yada, 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 the whole matrix. uh, Oh, maybe what if we're living in the matrix idea? And I was going after that, going further and further down the rabbit hole. And my mom was like, come here, watch. And she pinched me. And I was like, ow. She goes, did that hurt? I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, there you go. You're real. (laughs) And And I was like no, that doesn't prove, and I'm, like, trying to figure out how to hold up to uh, try to defend skepticism, and in reality, it's, it's it's funny because no one actually can live out skepticism. An example that's given, and I can't remember if this was in The Intellectual Life or in Father Coppin's textbook on logic, but he talks about the, like, if if a car's coming at you, like you're not gonna just let it hit you. You're gonna jump out of the way. Even a skeptic and a skeptic, uh, they tell a story of like something falling from the sky, falling from a building, and the skeptic jumps out of the way and he moves. And they're like, "Well, why did you move out of the way?" And he said, "Well, you know, sometimes you just can't shake your your programming or something like, something along those lines." Because yeah, we are just we know the world exists. It's self evident to us. We have to convince ourselves that it doesn't exist. It is self evident that it does. And I think that's a really good point um, that people make. Another thing that is a good defense against relativism is the Holy Rosary. Now, the Holy Rosary is something that is very beautiful, and it was given by Our Lady to St. Dominic to battle against the Albigensian heresy. Now, the Albigensian heresy was created, and it was a denial of the material world. It was a denial of the sacraments that was very attractive to people because they lived a very rigorous life. But the rosary was given by Our Lady to combat this. And one of the reasons why it was a good tool for combating it, because it was a meditation upon the life of Christ. So in the same sense, the rosary can be a good battling ram against relativism, against skepticism. Because if you're meditating upon the fact that our Lord became incarnate, that he walked on this earth, that he did miracles, that he suffered and died for our sins, that he rose bodily from the dead, that he assumed into heaven, that he ascended into heaven. And he assumed the body of our lady and crowned her body. Her physical body was crowned and made the queen of heaven and earth. If you meditate on those things, it's hard to be a skeptic. Well, unless you just deny, unless you just want to deny Christianity, which most people are at least want to, um, Hold to some of this. It's a good battling ram against these people. Um, so, there's something to think about. The rosary is a beautiful tool. It's a great uh, weapon in our times even still against all these different things. So, skepticism. Uh, let's move on to relativism. So, this leads us to re- relativism. Now, the complete relativist who denies all truth is quite easily defeated. Most people have heard the following phrase. They will say, and I'm going to give my character here as the relativist, Riley, the relativist, Riley, the relativist says there is no absolute truth. Now, Dominic, he is the Thomist. He's the realist. He says, well, is it absolutely true that there is no absolute truth? Now, this defeats Riley the relativist, and most people have heard this argument before. But let me explain why it works. Because in this in this statement, there is no absolute truth. You are actually presenting a proposition. You are making the claim that there. You're saying that it is absolutely sure. I am absolutely certain that there is no absolute truth. Now, if you are saying that there is no absolute truth, then your very statement is in and of itself false. It is said by one of the philosophers, I can't remember who said it, said um, relativism is having your, your feet firmly planted in midair. And that's a funny saying, and it's a true saying, because whenever you think about it, you cannot really be a relativist, not being consistent. Now, if you are saying that, like I said before, that you are a complete skeptic and nothing exists, well, then... Then it's then you can keep hold to it because you didn't say that the principle of non-contradiction doesn't work. But if you are a relativist that is more of a partial relativist, well, then this actually uh, destroys your own argument because you cannot claim anything. You cannot claim that I am wrong. You cannot claim that you are right. And this kind of conversation, Now, I'm going to touch on this later on in the talk. This kind of conversation happens constantly where they say, stop forcing your beliefs on me. Well, by you trying to stop me, you are now trying to force your beliefs on me. And so you turn into a hypocrite very quickly. Now, one might argue that I proved nothing. I simply said words. Others will understand what just played out. The reason not everyone will be convinced by this is because we have lost the understanding of a proof. Most people are not absolute relativists because they affirm scientific proofs. They will affirm that the Earth is a globe and that we rotate around the sun. But the theory of gravity... Uh, and the theory of gravity, but why? These people will categorize for simplicity, simplicity's sake, uh, we will call them a moral relativist or a partial relativist. They affirm the material truths, but deny moral truths. Now, another interesting thing you could say is, can you prove the scientific method without using the scientific method or using the scientific method? You can't actually prove the scientific method with the scientific method. So it's an interesting thing to bring up, but that's not the point. Anyway, going on, they affirm the material truths and the moral truths. Let's have a brief discussion on logic. These are the things that we believe that require no proof. These are the three big ones that I want you to know. So these are three things. I went over them very quickly in our, in my talk, you exist, the principle, of non-contradiction, the power of the intellect to know truths or to know truth. Now, these are not exactly stated in the most technical way. Um, this is not really a lecture. Um, Because this in itself should be a whole thing. So, you exist. That is the first thing that you need to know. Because if you do not believe you exist, then nothing else we're going to say here is of any consequence. So, you exist. I can't prove that you exist. You can take the um, Cartesian route and do the uh, empty out the basket and say, okay, I think therefore I am. I think that's foolish. Whenever you do that, whenever you try to be a Cartesian, try to build up your dogmas from scratch, what that does to you is it puts you at a disadvantage. Because whenever we're working with philosophy, theology, the same way that we work with science, you work on the shoulders of giants. We could not have reached where we are today without the people we have had before us. For instance, St. Thomas Aquinas builds on Augustine and Aristotle. Uh, Augustine built on Plato the theologians of the great, the uh, scholastics built on St. Thomas. Now the people who come after, but Gary Lagrange built on the entire scholastic tradition. But if all of a sudden you say, okay, I got to start from the beginning. I don't want to assume anything. Well, now you put yourself at a great disadvantage. You have to be able to trust the people that came before you. The same thing happens in the field of science. What if every single scientist was convinced that they had to prove every single principle on their own before starting science, you end up not going anywhere. So anyway, that was a huge side tangent. Anyway, the principle of non-contradiction, we talked about this a few times already, but I think this is the most important one because this one is one that you can notice all the time and that we kind of use all the time without actually thinking about what it means. So the principle of non-contradiction, you know, I just realized I I wrote it out and I'm not explaining it um, according to what I wrote. I'm just explaining it off the top of my head. I don't know why I'm doing that. So I'm just going to read. Anyways these principles are not provable but they are self-evident just by thinking and by exercising you, know, you will the uh, by exercising your will you will be aware of your existence okay there you go I totally did not word that correctly, but I'm going to move forward. The principle of non-contradiction states that a thing cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Thus, you cannot have a four-sided triangle or God cannot exist and non-exist, or you, Damien, uh, cannot have been asleep in his bed at the same time that he was at the scene of a crime. So with the, let me uh, expound on that a little bit further. The reason why you can't, so you can't have a four-sided triangle. Why? Because it is a it is a contradiction in terms. You, A triangle, by definition, is a, is a three-sided shape. It's a three-sided polygon. So if you say, I would like to have, can you draw me a four-sided triangle? Well, that would violate the principle of non-contradiction. A triangle cannot both be a square and a triangle at the same time and in the same respect. It's not possible. Uh, God cannot exist nor, and not exist. So either God exists or he doesn't. There is no middle ground. He can't like partially exist. He can't exist for you and not for me. He either does or he doesn't. Somebody who was, if he was either asleep in his bed or he was at the scene of a crime, it couldn't be both places at the same time. So that's the principle of non-contradiction as examples. The power of the intellect to know the truth. That's the third one. The power of the intellect to know the truth. This is articulated in this little exchange. A snarky young lady asked her philosophy professor, why is truth important? Why should I care about truth? The professor, having heard this many times, swiftly responds, do you want the true answer or the false one? This little exchange demonstrates the natural attraction we have to the truth. We don't like to be lied to and we seek true answers to our questions, not false ones. Thus, our intellect is directed toward knowing the truth. Now, if you deny that the power of the intellect is to know the truth, if you said, for instance, no, the power of the intellect is to know false things, well, then... You can't trust your senses. And that's another one that St. Thomas brings up is the, uh, that you have to trust your senses. Our senses are reliable, generally speaking. Now, obviously, we can be deceived. Obviously, we get things wrong. But it's the power of the intellect to know the truth. It is, it is directed toward the truth. We seek to know the truth. We desire to know the truth. And we, and we can obtain the truth. That's another thing that's very important here. Now, I don't know if anybody's even watching live or not, but if you are watching live, feel free to ask questions in the comment section, and I will get to those at some point. But anyway, I will continue. So we're going to get into relativistic slogans in a second, but the let's go on forward. Now that we have those principles in mind, let's look at common objections to the Catholic position, We covered this one already, but we will just revisit it for a second. There is no absolute truth. This is clearly false because the claim refutes itself. By asserting there is no truth, you are making a truth claim. The second is like unto it. Don't be so judgmental. The problem with this statement is that you have just violated the moral principle which you have asserted. You are saying here you are being judgmental. Being judgmental is a moral wrong. Therefore, you should not be judgmental. The problem here is that I could simply respond by saying, are you judging that I am being judgmental? Thus, proving that you are not only making a moral claim, but you are also violating the very moral claim that you are asserting. Now, a v- brief explanation of our Lord's words, Thou shalt not judge. Uh, this is every liberal's favorite Bible verse. It's the only Bible verse that liberals know, uh, which is rather funny, in my opinion. So, the idea here that our Lord gives is that we should judge rightly. Briefly put, our Lord says that in the same chapter that we are just to judge rightly, for it is impossible not to judge. Every action we take, we are judging. You are currently judging everything I'm saying. And by thinking, is what I'm saying true or is it false? Is he a good speaker or is he a bad speaker? Am I bored or am I engaged? All these different things are judgments. Because a judgment, and I should have put the, the exact definition instead of trying to remember off the top of my head. A judgment is comparing two truths or two things that were apprehended by the mind. Um, I should do a whole video on logic, though I'm not an expert on logic. I'm trying to teach myself logic because I find it very lacking that it's not taught, which is why I'm reading a te- few textbooks on logic at the moment. But the your mind apprehends things. It observes and then apprehends them, and then it grasps those things and puts it into our mind. And we hold those things. Now, apprehension, now we have to see whether or not those apprehensions are true or false. And that is what we call a judgment. And we're, when we're comparing things, we're comparing two things that we deem to be true. We are making a judgment. And whenever we fail to make a judgment, whenever we are struggling to make a judgment, that is what we call doubt. Whenever we have doubt, you are paralyzed at the moment. You are unable to make a decision. I uh, will move forward. Our Lord's command in reference is is in reference to the soul. We cannot and should not judge the interior life the state of someone's someone else's soul. That is inaccessible to us. But we can judge actions. We can tell that someone did something wrong without knowing anything of their interior life. For example, we see someone in front of us drown their baby in a bathtub. We know that what they did is evil. What we don't know is the person's culpability. Maybe that person was suffering from brain damage and thought her child was an intruder. This would not change the fact that she did in fact commit an evil, but it changes her responsibility. And that's where we get in the distinctions in the church about mortal and venial sins because an act can still be an evil act without you being culpable for that evil act. Another example might be if someone is firing a gun into uh, the woods and someone is hiding in the woods, you don't know they're there and you shoot and kill them. Well, it's not your fault that you killed them. However, It's still bad that someone died. It's still an evil act that you killed someone. You're just not culpable for that. And the law reflects this as well with saying the difference between degrees of murder and manslaughter, that kind of thing as well. I'll continue. The next one is what's true for you may is not true for me. This is also articulated as, well, that's your truth or you do you. This is false because the truth is not multiplied. It is one. The temperature outside cannot be both 90 degrees for me. But 65 degrees for you, this has to be distinguished from preference or opinions. You could say that it's hot outside and I could say that it's cold outside when it's the same temperature because hot or cold are more relative or feeling hot or cold are more relative. So this has to be distinguished from these things. These things are not making a truth claim. If I say I like Dr. Pepper more than Coke, that is a statement of opinion. In this sense, you can say you do you. For things that are like that. But if I said, for instance, I don't know, that Dr. Pepper is made of 23 flavors and Coca-Cola is not, you cannot respond by saying, no, Coca-Cola is made of 23 flavors and Dr. Pepper is not. Because now we're not making an opinion claim, we're making a truth claim, and those things can be tested, and one thing is true and the other is false. But in a moral claim, this is not the case. If it is wrong to torture children for you, then it is wrong for everyone. This is the case with most moral truths. Now, this is an also an important thing because it's a difference between saying that you like something and you do not like something. You can like something and recognize that it is wrong. Like, for instance, if someone was, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, an alcoholic. If you're an alcoholic, you might say, I like beer. I like liquor. But I recognize that it is wrong for me to drink it. I recognize that it is an evil for me to drink it because of my current status. That is what the church calls uh, intrinsic evils. So intrinsic evils are things that are always evil, no matter what. These things, for example, they would say sexual acts outside of marriage is always wrong. Now, that is not saying that the sexual act is always wrong, because the sexual act is good in the context of marriage, but evil outside of which. Or this one, it is always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent life, also known as murder. So this condemns abortion, euthanasia, genocide, school shootings, et cetera, but it leaves open the right to self-defense. You can kill someone who is an imminent threat to your life. That would not be murder. So there is there's the principle. You might say that killing is wrong, but killing has to be distinguished because killing is not always wrong. Murder is always wrong because that's, by definition, the intentional killing of an innocent life. But killing is not always wrong because in the case of self-defense or in the case of capital punishment or in the case of a just war. Other cultures have different moral values. This is another slogan that you might hear. Other cultures have different moral values. Therefore, moral values are relative. This is also known as the difference of opinion fallacy. Before showing why it's false, let's show why it's absurd. The person who believes this would object if I said, well, for the Nazis, it was okay to kill the Jews. It was part of their culture. So we should just let them be. Or if I said, for the communists, it was okay to steal people's property and give it to the state leaving their people in starvation. Therefore, let them be. Or lastly, in the South, if it was okay to hold slaves, that's just part of their culture, so let them be. You do you. No, people would rightly respond to these evils with outrage and condemnation. They would call to liberate these people and protect them, thus showing that they don't actually believe this. Now, the proof is that the difference between cultures is vastly overstated. it's quite remarkable in reality how much all the cultures agree about basic moral principles. This is what we call the natural law, which I won't get into today. and I will get into, though, in my next segment on the question of who can be saved. Every culture agrees that murder is wrong. The intentional killing of the innocent persons. They will argue either that the people we are killing are not innocent or they are not people. Like in the case of abortion, the common argument against abortion or for abortion, rather, is that they are not human persons. Therefore, we can kill them because if they're just a clump of cells, then you're just committing. You're just doing surgery. If it's a parasite, then it's nothing no different than killing a bug. Now, this is the case in every circumstance. The Nazis dehumanize the Jews saying they're not human. And so forth and so forth. Like the communists will say, no, we're not stealing property from other people. The property belongs to the state. So really it's ours to begin with. We're we're taking back what is ours. So you notice this is the case in every aspect in pagan life, all these different things. They recognize the moral truths, but they justify their evils by, by making a distinction between why it's wrong for them to do it in a certain circumstance and not another circumstance. Now, we know by scientific evidence that babies are, that the child in the womb is a human life. So we see that all the principles are agreed upon from culture to culture, but they justify the evils that they do. Here's another one. Perception is reality. This is a big one today, and so we're going to spend a little bit extra time on it. Before I say about why it's wrong, let me say why it's right first. There's an element of truth to the idea of perception is reality, and that element of truth is that, we treat things as if it's real based of our perception. Like, for instance, if you believe that ghosts exist and you're sitting in your bed at night and you hear there's a wind blowing outside, you might think to yourself, oh, my goodness, there's a ghost outside and you might get scared for you. But you might say perception is reality. Now, that's false because perception is not actually reality. It's not true that there is a ghost outside assuming that ghosts are not real. I actually think that ghosts probably are real, but that's a different topic. And depending on what you mean by ghost, meaning demons, souls in purgatory, that kind of thing. But anyway, I'll continue. The perception is reality. So what I mean by saying that there's an element of truth in it is that we often act according to our perception. In fact, we can only act according to our perception, but we have to realize is that perception is not reality. That If our perception is one thing and reality is another, we have to recognize reality and then live our lives in accordance to that reality. Now, this is often referred to as mind over matter. It's another way of saying this. And there's, like I said, there's an element of truth to this. If you are sick and you have a perception that you are doing better, we actually see scientific evidence that you actually get better. And same thing in reverse, hypochondriacs, people who believe that they are sick, will oftentimes make themselves sick just by willing it. It's a very odd thing that I think I would be very interested in hearing scientifically how that works. Maybe it's purely spiritual. I don't know. That's a very interesting topic. But in a sense, that's the case. However, even in this case, perception is not reality, but your ideas have now made you sick. And now it is reality. But perception was not reality because before you weren't actually sick yet. So we're going to continue on this on this path. This argument claims that what you believe to be true is true. Now, this is absurd, especially considering the definition of truth that we gave at the beginning of the talk. Truth is the adherence of the mind to reality. Reality exists without us. When we die, reality will continue to exist. Before we were born, reality was still here. What we perceive to be true has no bearing on the reality of it. If I perceive that you all were dogs, it would not make you so. This error is most clearly seen in the transgender movement. The claim that men can become women and women can become men is based on a whim. Excuse me. Now, this is not a talk on trans ideology, and thus I won't go too deep into this. However, considering its prevalence, it should be addressed. The left defines a woman as anyone who identifies as a woman and a man as anyone who identifies as a man. The problem is just what we said above. Your perception or self-identity has no effect on reality. If you believe you are a tree, it does not make you so. The other problem is that it reduces words to meaninglessness. If a woman is simply that which identifies as a woman, then the word woman doesn't mean anything. Just as if you would be crazy to eat a chocolate cake and say a chocolate cake is actually vegetables. You simply saying so does not make it so. Now I'm thinking of Alice in Wonderland talking about the, in Alice in Wonderland, it is said, I believe it was the, was it the Caterpillar or maybe it was a Cheshire cat. I think it was a Caterpillar who talking to Alice was saying that the, who is to be master over words. That is the only thing that matters. And that is what we have here in the words of Hamlet, words, words, words. What is Hamlet talking about? He's saying the absurdity of it. It is not a endorsement of it. It is actually a condemnation of it, of this idea that words are meaningless. Words are whatever you say they are. So if you continue to eat your vegetables that you call vegetables that are actually just chocolate cake, well, in reality would assert itself on you and you will gain weight and become unhealthy. And this is ultimately the problem with this mentality because reality always reasserts itself. You can have all the perception you want, but you cannot actually change reality with your perception. Just like the example of the cake, the same thing with anything. If you eat poison, but you imagine and you will it and you believe it, you sincerely believe it, that it is actually a, I don't know, a gumdrop, you will die. You will die. It is as simple as that. If you were tra- stranded on a deserted island and you're trying to drink the salt water and you, you believe You truly believe that it is fresh water and you can drink it. You will die. Reality reasserts itself. We are made for the truth, and to deny the truth is to do harm to ourselves. We see this in the extraordinary high rates of suicide, depression, and medical complications with people who identify as trans. This is often attributed to bullying, but we see that these rates among trans individuals is higher than that of the African slaves and the Jews in the Holocaust. Ultimately, a lot more can be said about this topic, but fundamentally, this ideology is a denial of all truth. It's a claiming that they have mastery over reality. Not only this, but they can assert that false reality on everyone else, that all society must participate in the lie and the disorder of reality. If you have ever read or spoken to someone who has detransition, it is actually tr- truly heartbreaking. I have a couple times, and if you think that it's OK, read their stories and hear their testimonies. I personally won't bring it up right now because it's quite gruesome, the surgery that they do, the trauma that they go through, the lifelong medical problems, and the loss of ever having a normal life. So I'll leave that behind um, for now, but we'll have to move forward. I don't want this to be too, too long, even though technically I can just go on ad infinitum. But for now, I want to move forward with this. I don't want this to be four hours long. So... I'll have to leave behind some other common objections due to time, but I wanted to finish on two topics, tolerance and truth. Now, the question of tolerance, I think, is very fascinating to me. Well, I don't think it's fascinating to me. It is fascinating to me. I want to actually do a episode one day where I read Fulton Sheen's um, essay on a plea for intolerance. I'm going to read a portion of it here. He starts off by... Giving a false the explaining the false virtue of tolerance. Fulton Sheen says, America, it is said is suffering from intolerance. It is not. It is suffering from tolerance. Tolerance of right and wrong, truth and error, virtue and evil, Christ and chaos. Our country is not nearly so much overrun with the bigoted as it is overrun with the broad-minded. The man who can make up his mind in an orderly way is a man who might make up the way a man might make up his bed is called a bigot. But a man who cannot make up his mind any more than he can make up for lost time is called tolerant and broad-minded. So you'll notice that those who cry tolerance are always the ones who are, in fact, intolerant. They do not so much want peace though, through tolerance, but a suppression of truth. Notice, too, that in the very name of tolerance, it implies a truth claim. You do not and cannot tolerate something that which you agree with. For the word tolerant implies enduring evil. Tolerance is a prudential choice to allow evil and error to exist. It's to tolerate it. I am tolerant of error and evil because I love truth. I'm intolerant, rather, of error and evil because I love truth and love the sinner. We are called to tolerate and love the sinner, but to be intolerant and to hate the sin. This is an important principle of which we've forgotten. And I'll reiterate this once more because I kind of stumbled over my words a little bit. We are called to tolerate and love the sinner, but to be intolerant and to hate the sin. Now, if you heard my podcast on the integralist argument with Father Crean, Father Thomas Crean, we talked a little bit about toleration of tolerating false religions. This is a legitimate thing. You can and should tolerate false religions if you are living in a Christendom. Why should you do that? Well, for a number of reasons, one of which is the fact that we can't coerce someone into believing the true faith, but recognizing it and saying that you tolerate it is by definition saying that you recognize what this is, is wrong. It is evil. It is not good, but we are allowing it to exist for a certain reason. Certain things cannot be tolerated. Like for instance, trans and kids, uh, the sin of murder, the sin of theft, Certain things cannot be tolerated in a society for it to function well. Other things can be tolerated. St. Thomas famously argued that we may, in certain circumstances, need to tolerate brothels to exist in a country. Whether or not that's true, I'm not entirely sure I'm wanting to disagree with Thomas about anything without having a really good reason to. So I'm going to assume that I don't understand his argument quite well enough, but I think that it would make sense to ban that kind of thing. But he thinks that we should tolerate it, at least according to my understanding of what he said. I could be wrong. Anyway, let's continue. She has been, she has been, and she will always be intolerant so far as the rights of gods con- God are concerned. For heresy, Error, untruth, affects not personal matters, on which she may yield, but a divine right, in which there is no yielding. Meek she is to the erring, but violent to the error. The truth is divine, the heretic is human. Due reparation made, she will admit the heretic back into the treasury of her souls, but never the heresy into the treasury of her wisdom. Right is right if nobody is right, and wrong is wrong if everybody is wrong. And in this day and age, we need, as Mr. Chesterton tells us, not a church that is right when the world is right, but a church that is right when the world is wrong. Now, I want to focus in on this point, which is the point I was just making. This is a quote from Fulton Sheen. The truth is divine. The heretic is human. Due reparation made, she will admit the heretic back into the treasury of her souls, but never the heresy into the treasury of her wisdom. That's very, very important. One thing that's important here is a recognition that a reparation must be made when you become a heretic. When someone becomes a schismatic, when someone apostatized from the faith, when someone is a heretic, they must make adequate reparation. And the half of our father, the half of Hail Mary that the priest may give you and the confessional is probably not sufficient. Maybe you should think about what kind of reparation can you make? Now let's continue forward a little bit further. So the other thing is that we never admit the heresy into the treasury of our wisdom. This is very true. We cannot admit heresy into the treasury of the wisdom of the church. Why? Because the church cannot believe in error. We must reject it. And the church And this is a great scandal today because of the situation, the church today, the church must be right. When the world is wrong, when the church is right, when the world is right, well then that's good too, but it doesn't serve as great of a purpose. Now that the, the world is in such error is a time when the church needs to stand up more than ever before. Okay. Finally, let's end on truth. Actually, before we end, I do want to go over this principle from Gary Goulagrange. He says the church is intolerant in principle because she believes she is tolerant in practice because she loves the enemies of the church are tolerant in principle because they do not believe they are intolerant in practice because they do not love. This is a great, beautiful quote from Reginald Gary Goulagrange. What is the significance of this quote? The church is intolerant in principle. That's because the church has dogmas. The church has teachings that are clear and defined. And we recognize this is true. This is false. Very intolerant. Very clear. There is no salvation outside the church. There is, you are not saved by faith alone. These things are very clear in the church because we believe Because we believe, we are intolerant of false things. It's what St. Augustine says we have faith seeking understanding. Because you can believe in things without 100% 100 understanding what you're believing. We sometimes need to believe in it in order to get a better grasp of what we're believing. That is a whole other topic in itself, but I think it's worth talking about just for a second. I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that we should not have reasons for our belief. We should definitely have reasons for our belief. It is not just some blind faith, but there is an element of trust. We trust the church because she was divinely instituted because we believe that. Well, then the other truths that are further down the line that we may not quite understand, for instance, some Protestants struggle with the dogmas of our lady, Well, they can reliably believe in the dogmas of our lady because they trust the church because they said, okay, I'm convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm convinced he started a church. I'm convinced in apostolic succession and I'm convinced of the papacy. So if I'm convinced of these things, then I will just recognize that I just don't understand the rest of it right now. They, they, I believe it is true because the church has said it so, and I will seek understanding. The next line here is she is tolerant in practice because she loves. Now, we, this goes back to what I was saying a second ago, love of the sinner. Even though these people are wicked, these people desire the death of us. These people hold to evil truths, evil, not truths, the evil positions, evil opinions, evil ideas. We are to love them. And thus we tolerate their existence. We don't go around killing them all. This is a standpoint of love, a standpoint of charity. The enemies of the church are tolerant in principle, meaning we hear them preach about tolerance. We hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. Whenever I go to rosary rallies, whenever we pray outside of abortion clinics, when we pray outside of transgender events, we pray outside of blasphemous events. They always scream at us. Where's your tolerance? Right. Why are you not being tolerant? Why be tolerant to us? They are tolerant because they do not believe they have no faith. They have no supernatural faith. And so they believe they are tolerant. They say they are tolerant anyways because they have no actual beliefs. They are intolerant in practice because they do not love. So they preach tolerance, but then they will attack you and say and try to drive you away. And this is why one of the reasons I like the TFP, they have a great video on relativism. It's like nine minutes long. I highly recommend checking it out. If it's on the TFP student action, just look up what is truth, TFP student action or moral relativism, student action, something like that. And they it's a great example of what we're seeing here. And oftentimes the TFP, whenever these people, these leftist mobs, will come after them and start shouting at them, saying, who are you to judge, uh, Why you need to be tolerant, yada, yada, yada. They come at them screaming, yelling, spitting on them, attacking them physically in some occasions. One thing, one, uh, thing that they'll do occasionally is they'll sing uh, this little song they made up. It's really funny. It drives them mad. They say, where's your tolerance? Where's your tolerance? You have none. You have none. Practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. And the reason why they do that is because it drives them nuts, for one. And two, it points out to everybody watching and listening because the sound pierces through the arguments, pierces through their screaming and yelling. What it does is it points out the fact that they are not actually tolerant themselves. They don't actually believe the things that they are saying that they believe. And that's a very important principle because they don't actually live their things. They don't live their truth. They don't live their philosophy. And that's something that's worth pointing out. Now, finally... Let's end on love of truth. And I'm going to take my face off of here because y'all don't y'all don't want to see me or I'm going to move me at least so that way y'all can see our lady instead of seeing me because she is much more beautiful than I am. Okay. The last thing I want to focus on and the last thing I want to leave you with is the love of eternal wisdom. Is a love of truth. Let's end with truth. Now that we know that truth cannot contradict truth, we know that all religions can't be true, especially when the Catholic church claims to be the true faith. This I was not asked to speak on, so I will take it for granted. You all know that y'all all know this. Instead, I will try to bestow upon you a love of eternal wisdom, love of the truth with the capital T. You cannot love something that you do not know. The more you love someone, the more you wish to know them. This is why the Bible refers to the marital act As knowing their spouse, anytime you see the marital act of two people in the Bible, they say that they knew one another for it is in the marital act that they know their spouse in the most intimate way. The same is here for the truth to love Christ, who is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. We must know him. This means we must dive deep into the teaching of the church and learn everything we can about our most sacred doctrines. It also means we have to pray to reveal our hearts to him who is the truth and listen when he speaks. We have to have a head truth and a heart truth. We have to know God We have to learn about him, read the scriptures, learn the doctrines, read the good spiritual books. And then we need heart truths. We need to pray. We need to talk to the one we love. Now, as St. Louis de Mumford says in his love of eternal wisdom, can we love someone we do not know? Can we love deeply someone we know only vaguely? Why is Jesus the adorable and eternal and incarnate wisdom loved so little, if not because he is either too little known or not known at all? Hardly anyone studies the supreme science of Jesus as did St. Paul. And yet this is the most noble, the most consoling, the most useful and the most vital of all sciences and subjects in heaven and on earth. I want to make one last comment here. The supreme science of Jesus. How much time do we give? Do we set aside for the study to coming to know our Lord, to coming to know our lady, to coming to know his saints? Because remember our Lord will be honored in his angels and in his saints. So let us know our Lord, let us know our lady, let's meditate on these things. How much time do we set aside? We watch YouTube videos, we read, we read nonsense, we talk to our friends, we go to bars, we have fun, we play games, we watch TV, not necessarily, these things are not necessarily bad, but we spend the most time with something that we love. We dedicate our time to things that we care about. So if we dedicate no time to our Lord, if we dedicate no time to the study of the faith, how can we claim that we love the faith? How can we claim that we love our Lord? I want you to think about that. Okay. Lastly, and I will take questions if anybody is listening live. I don't know if anybody is. I'm looking and it looks like there's four people listening live, but I don't know. And I will conclude with the prayer. After the prayer, I will look to see if there's any questions. And if there's not, then we'll close out. But uh, before I forget, make sure to like, subscribe, hit the bell notification. If you like the live stream format of this, let me know. And maybe we can do more of these and this format. If not, then I'll go back to doing recorded ones and editing it and making it all polished and nice. So let me know what you think which you, and if you enjoyed it or you did not enjoy it, share it, like, subscribe, hit the bell notification, all that jazz, the things that I'm supposed to say, comment down below because commenting helps the algorithm, all that jazz. Anyway, let's conclude in the prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Let us pray. Mother of mercy, grant me the favor of attaining the true wisdom of God. And so make me one of those whom you love. Teach and guide whom you nourish and protect as your children and slaves. Virgin, most faithful, make me in everything so committed a disciple, imitator, and slave of Jesus, your son, incarnate wisdom that I may become through your intercession and example, fully mature with the fullness which Jesus possessed on earth and with the fullness of its glory in heaven. Amen. Let those accepted who can, let the wise consider these things in the name of the father and the son and the Holy ghost. Amen. Okay. Let's see. I am not seeing any comments. Thus, I will conclude there since I don't see anything else. I'm looking, I'm looking, giving you all a second to say anything if you want to. Okay. All right. I will conclude then. I also, I wanted to do a whole thing on the biblical commentary on what is truth, but I didn't think that was going to be a good prudent use of time. So anyway, that was supposed to be a 20 minute talk and that was already 55 minutes. So yeah, there you go, folks. All right, God bless you. God love you. And I will see y'all next time. Let me know if you like the live stream idea or not. I just want to be very curious to see what you think.